further up and further in. I'm Amy and I'm here with Michelle. Hey, Amy. I'm really excited about today because we're going to interview one of our very dear friends and one of our most loyal podcast followers as far as we can keep track. Yay. Yay. How do we keep track? Eh, we, we, I mean, it's, it's the people that message us and considering yeah. we have like two consistent ones, then we have two top fans <laughs> and they're not just our moms. So no, they are. We're, we feel like we're winning. So we'd like to introduce our listeners to our good friend, Scott Whitford. Sound hey, everybody. Oh yeah. <laughs> Applause, something, booze from the crowd, something. I think in the beginning, Amy and I talked about getting some sort of machine that made noises, but you know, that thought petered out. We just make up our own. Yep. The visual confetti just wouldn't translate to the podcast. So it's so true. Exactly. So for so many reasons, I appreciate your feedback, Scott. A, you're always an authentic and honest person. I feel like you don't go to your way to say things you don't mean. And something that's really uh, dear to Amy's and my heart both is that we believe the messages that we carry in life, in ministry, and through our podcast are not gender specific. Mm-hmm. So somehow you let us know that the the words that we speak, the true ones, the hilarious ones, the whatever filler ones <laughs> resonate with both male and female. And so I think you, well, no, no, you, oh no, you're the second male we've interviewed. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the first, first one was my dad. So I right? mean, that kind of Does that was count? an easy one. Maybe that was a sympathy interview. I don't know. Oh, it, it always counts. Absolutely. I mean, you, you know, you're going to get good feedback from people who are close to you. That, that, that's the way it should be. <laughs> anyway, we're just so delighted, Scott. So uh, I'm our, happy to be here. Happy to join you guys. <laughs> our listeners who are actually more than even in one country mm-hmm. might not have the privilege of knowing you. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, sure. Um, well, I'm uh, I'm a lead pastor at uh, at a church in Central Alberta. Uh, I grew up in Saskatchewan, and my wife grew up in BC in the Kelowna uh, city of Kelowna. So we we uh, we got into ministry in Saskatchewan, and uh, when it was time to move on, we just thought it was nice to find something in between, sort of where I grew up and where she grew up. So we landed in Alberta. We've been here for just about 14 years now in the same church. Uh, we've got two boys. They are. 21 and 19, both at Trinity Western in Langley. Uh, one's taking film study and the other is taking English. So we're super happy about how they're landing and the direction they're going. And that's the, I mean, that's the movie trailer version. We can't say Reader's Digest version anymore that dates us. So that's the, the movie trailer version. <laughs> you just schooled me on something important I should be saying differently. That's awesome. Yeah. Your delightful wife is one of my favorite features of yours. <laughs> oh. She is the best. Awesome. She is the best. Yes. And we know she's a listener too. She's one of those quiet people. She's like a a secret agent. She doesn't always speak up so much, but she changes everything around her with what she carries. I love that. So Scott, you're another pastor. So here we are with three pastors. I can see my sister cringing already (laughs) because her faithful listeners know how pious we are. (laughs) people might think you're really pious too just by virtue of hanging out with us um 
so were you like conceived and born on a church pew? No, no, I did not grow up in the church. I, I did have a small church experience when I was little. Uh, the best way I could describe it was there's a tiny little Mennonite brethren church in the town I grew up in. And mom would literally send my brother and I out the door with two quarters each to put in our pocket to kind of dump into the little church shaped Sunday school offering uh, <laughs> box. And uh, so we did that for probably about a year and a half. And, and I, I do have some fond memories of that time, but we were quite young, but um, it didn't, it didn't really stick and kind of had some some rough, some rough years in my teenagers. My older brother passed away when I was 15. And that was kind of one of the, one of the catalysts that God used just to sort of bring my heart to a place where it was soft and ready to receive what he had. So I kind of had a two year journey of just sort of trying to figure out what, what was right side up and what was upside down. So I had some religious curiosity. I had some substance curiosity, relationship curiosity, all of these things that we kind of pursue to maybe fill the void or find meaning but eventually it came to a head and I realized this is just kind of kind of meaningless really you know almost like the the Ecclesiastes everything is meaningless but without the the, the biblical truth behind it, I was just experiencing it in real life so had a friend of mine invite me to um, I guess what I could only describe as one of the most awkward evangelistic meetings you could ever hold in the Mennonite belt in Saskatchewan <laughs> we had this this uh, this black preacher come up from Heston, Kansas. His name was Hubert Brown, and I'm telling you, it was it was the funniest thing. I, you know, any Mennonites in the crowd that uh, that are listening, I'm also part Mennonite, so I think I can get away with this one. But uh, <laughs> within the first 15 minutes of him speaking on the first night, uh, 20 people got up and left. It was just too much, too too outside of their box. But uh, he carried on with uh, with joy, danced around the stage, and and talked about what it means to sit on the fence and which side of the fence God wants us to land on. I just remember kind of looking to my left and there was nobody within five chairs on my left and nobody within five chairs on my right, but my heart is beating out of my chest. And I know that I'm the person who hasn't, who hasn't really found the truth yet. And so, you know, it was a Holy spirit pull. It was my moment to find Jesus. So I just uh, kind of bowed my head and prayed, Jesus, I just don't really want to do this on my own anymore. Uh, take whatever there is here and whatever you want to do with it is up to you. Mm. And it was transformative moment. Absolutely powerful man that's such like a prayer of of surrender really uh yeah i guess the best the best way i could describe it is you know when you when you're kind of if you're in a human maze like a corn maze or a hedge maze and you kind of run around a corner and there's always the hope that this is going to be the thing that gets you out but then you hit the dead end well then you got to turn around retrace your steps hit another dead end and it was almost like it just sort of parted and and this way was made for me just to walk mm-hmm. through. So I did, it really, it didn't feel like self-effort at all. I actually just felt like it was dropped into my lap. This is actually what you're looking for. I think that open heart piece is just critical. I mean, it's critical to, to find Jesus, but critical to grow in Jesus. So that's kind of, maybe I started in the same, in the same way and it just kind of became a pattern. Mm. There's so much I love about that story. I am delighted you shared it. I always want to know, you know, I grew up knowing Jesus to some degree, for sure, from the time I was six a lot. And then I just think, how do people come to the Lord as adults? And even as we observe tragedies in lives of people we love, we think God didn't cause that. Will this cause them to harden their heart towards God or discover him because he's so present in our suffering? Mm. So I love that story. 
-hmm. it kind of started that way, which is, which is maybe not unusual, but I remember I actually just told the story yesterday in, uh, in church. And uh, after my brother passed away, he was 15 and really the, the circumstances still really haven't been explained. I like, I have a, a dossier of autopsy tests that were conducted. And then the only real explanation was that his heart stopped and it just wasn't able to be restarted. So it was very, very strange and inexplicable. But, but in the beginning, as I was kind of processing that, the, the, the grief piece was, was difficult in the sense that my parents kind of grieved in their own way. And I was left to grieve on my own and my own way. So we didn't actually grieve together as a family. So as I was trying to process this, I remember one day there was a, I think it was a Christianity Today or a Discovery magazine, one of those Christian magazines on the kitchen table. And I came home from school and because God had used this event to bring my mom back to her childhood faith and uh, saw this magazine on the kitchen table. And I remember yelling across through mom, you're not going to become one of those religious nutcakes, are you? Just one of those, one of those super bitter but embarrassing moments that if I could take back, I would. But uh, but I remember in the beginning, it was just sort of one of those, uh, how can you lean on that kind of garbage, right? Because you know, if it's real, then why would God allow stuff like that to happen? I I couldn't really say it that way then, but I think that's what was in my heart. Mm -hmm. Which is such a natural place for any of us to be. I always think anybody whose faith has been tested and through experience is going to have had a minimum of one of those moments yeah. in their story. Yeah. But the fact that you went to this meeting that drove away some religious people because it was somehow awkward and that's where you met God just delights me to know in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so everything after that was happily ever after. Because oh, that's how our faith works for about six months. And, uh, you know, and then, and then, and then real life kicks in. I mean, it, one of the greatest things that, that I could share from that time was uh, very immediately. I got involved with youth group and, and got involved in, in the church. This, this young lady who invited me to, to this meeting, um, the youth group that she was going to and really started to grow and get connected. It was fantastic. And very, very quickly felt a call into leadership and to ministry. And so that kind of became the, the, the focal point. So I, I started working at the church a little bit and hanging out and doing some leadership stuff and planning stuff. So that was, it was really good, but just not knowing then how many, how many of the rough edges just needed to be rubbed away. But I guess when you're young and you feel like you can take on the world, you just don't really slow down long enough to go, Hey, I'm a bit of a jerk sometimes, but, and the people around me were kind. They, they, they didn't want to tell me. <laughs> But I mean, this is a complete aside. Is that like super kind or is that maybe avoiding hard questions, hard conversations? It's definitely avoiding hard questions. I mean, I, I had a great youth pastor. And so we, we would meet once, once a week just to catch up and he would ask some difficult questions. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure that I was ready for them at the time, which is not really a reflection of him, but maybe just one of those, you know, it's easy to go from a soft heart, like from finding and receiving Jesus in that moment to you know, months later, just having, you know, character stuff come up and, uh, you know, the growth of, of faith and some of the growing pains that come along with it. And, you know, then all of a sudden it's like, Hey, wait a minute, I was doing so good, but now like I need to grow some more in areas that I don't really want to, or I kind of being challenged in areas where I don't really want the light to shine. And so, you know, harden the heart to that question. Like, no, nope, don't really want to go there. And, and uh, yeah it's easy to flip flop from the soft heart to the hard heart, depending on what area is being poked at. So it yeah. totally is. It seems 
like you kind of alluded there that like so often we don't even realize it's happened until either Holy Spirit or someone else or whatever happens. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, good. Ooh, oops. Okay. Goodness. I didn't realize that that was maybe a little bit of uh, self-protection in that area. Yeah, totally. I, it really is an activity of the spirit to reveal those things. And even, even if we, like we can rehearse conversations or, or scenarios and we can sort of do the, how would I do things differently? Or maybe that didn't go as well as I thought it would. Um, and we can maybe have natural eyes to see how things could have played out differently, but that's so much different when the Holy Spirit says that that word that you spoke may have been truthful, but it didn't come with as much love as I would have hoped. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's something you should chase down, but things that we wouldn't necessarily even be able to see if we're just looking at it through our own eyes. Mm-hmm. There's such a lie of sort of what I call the North American dream that we can have these sort of happily ever after lives. And I hear it sometimes in Christianity too, right? Come to Jesus and everything will be all better now. And it certainly is better with him than without him, as your testimony says, right? I don't want to do this alone anymore. And that was sort Mm -hmm. of my recommitment in life too. When I kind of recommitted my life to the Lord was like, I can't do this without you. I don't get you. And I don't like everything about you, but I can't do it without you. (laughs) And what you're really highlighting is that this is an ongoing journey. Mm -hmm. It it doesn't stop. And so much of the message of our podcast is that we run into these like speed bumps in our soul and our own souls and in relationships and in the world around us. And, and we can stay there and God will never love us an ounce less and he'll still delight in us. But all the good stuff we long for the stuff that's the further up and further in is on the other side of these awkward, holy, humbling, painful moments that we work through. And it's like we're sort of catapulted or launched forward yet again into the greater adventure of what God has for us. Mm -hmm. So tell us about a time that you really came up to years later where you're like, I'm stuck again. Oh, boy. Um, There's a few that stand out, but one one of them... it's sort of in the context of, of leadership in the church, but it was really personal in the sense that it involved a lot of key relationships. So it wasn't like a, a leadership moment. It was more like some of the relationships that have been built over time in ministry. Like it was probably six or seven, about seven years into our ministry here in Stetler and some key relationships where there's a lot of good investment, a lot of good relationship and friendship built, which is all kind of intermixed with activity and leadership and decisions and and ministry uh, but always that that foundational part is the friendships and the relationships that are built and some of those really got tested it was kind of a season where we transitioned from one building to another we were doing a lot of renovating in the new building and in the middle of that was a lot of meetings a lot of extra activities sort of on top of all the regular stuff and um some of it was just stress, I think, with people involved, and some of it was misunderstanding. Some of it was just character stuff that falls out when we are more stressed out. What? Well, it, it, it really does happen. I mean, I don't know if you guys are the same, but when I'm stressed out, it's like, you know, the longer fuse is the shorter fuse. The shorter fuse is no fuse at all, and the filters go right out the window when we start to say and do things. We're like, oh, dear, dear Jesus, please give them grace for me or give me grace for them. So it's our listeners couldn't street. see your hands, but when you said our character kind of falls out and put your hands like falling forward, that made me laugh because that's exactly how I feel. Like I've been working really hard to hold this part of me, and so no one knows, and it all just went loop. 
it's like having a conversation after a meal and all of a sudden like that meal burp comes and then you know it's coming and you think you can stifle it but like in the middle of the sentence like la 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 burp. oh gee that that really fell out sorry about that uh you know you can't pull it back in and, and pretend yeah. it didn't happen so oh that's such a good analogy so good, so good. <laughs> oh, yeah <laughs> So uh, you know, I hear you saying it was everyone else's fault, though. Am I hearing that clearly? Well, I want to <laughs> that say that's so, so bad. I want to say it's so bad, but it's really <laughs> not true. It, in the moment, though, like the, the emotional rawness of going through, you know, like when people are picking apart your character when they're frustrated about things and in your heart, you think, why would they be frustrated about that? Like, how rude and ignorant are they to treat me this way, you know? And, and that's how it always feels initially, right? And it's, I don't want to say it goes as far as a victim mentality, though it can very, very easily get there. Kind of the woe is me and nobody understands me. But, but even in the middle, like just a lot of the confusion of like, how, how could somebody get to a place where they say what they said or when they do what they did? Because the impact is so deep and it's people who are so close that people who are close to you should never treat you like that. They should always assume the best of you and they should always have their best foot forward. Even when you're having a rough day, like that's how this works, right? This all makes sense to me. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> Only if we're allowed to script it, right? Yeah. If we can oh. script it, here's oh. your response. Here's my response. This is, that's what I love about movies. <laughs> what thing I love about movies is you can script dialogue to any conclusion you want it to come to you can script responses you can script yeah. attitudes but there's no script for life <laughs> so, so there's all these terrible people who are not thinking the yeah. best of you and well and what do you do <laughs> well but, but here here's the thing jesus is kind in those moments because the pain is a gateway to see mm. what's in the soul almost like it's an opportunity to stand on the outside of the building or the house of your own soul and you're kind of you're looking in and you got to cup your hands around your eyes and, and lean up against the glass and you see what's inside and you're like oh I, I i don't know that i really like what's in there because it does expose prejudice it does expose character flaws it does expose prejudice that we have or even expectations that mm. we've never communicated the expectations we have of other people and when they don't fulfill those hidden expectations, then suddenly we've got the right to just blow a gasket or to, you know, to clam up internally and have zero response and just pretend like nothing ever happened. I mean, everybody has their own, their own way of dealing mm. with that critical moment. But for me, it was really just slugging on. Like we wanted to leave, but we wanted to process. We wanted to find a way out, but we didn't have it. Mm. When you talk about all those things you see when you're peering in the window, that thought that came to my mind is I also become aware of my needs, mm. not just expectations, but we have genuine needs. And I, I do expect other people to meet those needs without me taking responsibility for them. Yeah, totally. That's a lot of confession, but it's like, it's no one else's job to know what I need. Yeah. yeah. And there's also something really humbling for me to recognize again, I have needs. I am not this supercharged super powered, polished, something that's not even human. God created us with needs, yeah. but there's something for me in facing those that's a critical growth moment for me. Totally. And, and those, those needs, it's not even necessarily that they would be um, illegitimate needs, no, false needs, not at all. They're, they're real needs. But I, yes. what I really found, especially in this moment, but even in subsequent moments is it, it, it's a time when Holy Spirit can really shine a light and say, you do have these needs or you do have these values, but they're ordered wrong. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. We may have we may have a, a value of relational loyalty. We may expect people to be loyal to us, even when we're rude or disrespectful, or even when we're off our rocker, and they've got to stick by our side and not call us out on our junk. Well, loyalty is a great value to have, but if that's the chief loyalty that I'm operating by, where where should honesty be? Mm. Where's the truest expression of love in in friendship? Maybe those should be slightly higher, but we don't get a chance for those to be exposed until we actually go through go through that uh, that tunnel of chaos in in relationship. Mm. Yeah, that it's it's in the in the chaos and kind of fracturedness, we get a glimpse of where maybe some of our stuff has become disordered. Right? I'm hearing both of you say not that the needs are bad or not that you know expectations are are a bad thing but it's when they're disordered and kind of um, wrong valued or level of value is, is misplaced mm-hmm. that then, yeah. that then there's a, there's an issue going on. Yeah. I want you to like me more than I want you to be honest with me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then I say, it and I'm like, no, I don't. No, I don't at all. <laughs> Cause it sounds horrible when you say it out loud. Well, yeah. And also if I stop and think it through, it's not true. Yep, but at a visceral level, it is. So you found yourself in that holy awkward place of (laughs) feeling trapped in a difficult situation where you're not released. But I know you to be full of a joyful energy and love for people. So something happened. What happens? Thought. Oh man. Well, I'll 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 give you the I'll give you the movie trailer version because it's sort of like a three or four step thing that really uh, you know kind of one was a building block for another. So in the summer of 2015, our church planned a mission trip to Guatemala to an orphanage called Dory's Promise. And there's a group of about 20 of us that went, kind of adults, teenagers, kind of family-oriented groups that were all kind of banding together. And so we go to Guatemala, and the days were structured kind of like part A and part B. Part A of the day, we were out in the community doing community activities. And part B was when we were back at the orphanage when the kids were done school, and we'd spend time with them and do crafts and play with them and do language things and have a lot of fun. So in the evening, we would have a debrief time. And in the morning, we would have a devotional time. And we experienced a lot of really cool things on that trip, just in the morning and the evening in our gathering times, just prophetic words that were spoken, people reading scripture, times of worship. And coming back, it was the biggest question was, I mean, one, it was kind of joy giving in the sense that it was something that could help me get personally back on track, that we could build relationships again and and, and find ways to, to get past some of the hurt. Um, but coming back, the biggest question was, which is the real life, the life where you can dig in deep with people, live confessionally, live openly, uh, love and support one another and be on mission together, or the life you come back to where everything has to be so structured, or uh, there's so many, you know, pressures or demands that don't seem to orient around the things that have greater value. So really, it was a bit of a searching time to kind of figure out how am I meant to restructure my my life, my thoughts, my heart, my emotions, relationships, my ministry rhythms uh, to more reflect really what um, what God really revealed as something more important than just getting from day to day and the, the doing of things. Um, so that, that was kind of step one. Step two was uh, I took a sabbatical the following spring. And on the sabbatical, I, I, I took in a Holy Spirit encounter, took in a soul care event kind of within four to six weeks of each other. And so that was the, that was really the big thing. Cause that was the, the revelation of the internal junk, why mm-hmm. some of these things were the way they were, why I experienced them the way they were, it exposed insecurities, it exposed fear, 
Uh, it exposed just patterns of response, uh, conflict avoidance, just things that now are like, yep, those were on my side of the line to own in the middle mm. of those difficult situations. So God was kind not to thump me with it all at once. So it, it was a step one, two, three, but it was really the, the Holy Spirit encounter, the soul care kind of stuff that really catapulted me into that awareness. Was that, uh, was that soul care the same one that I was at? It was the one at Kingdom City? Uh, it was April, April, 2016 at Kingdom City. Yep. Okay. Yep. That was, yeah, that's where I met you for the first time. That's I think right. we were, we were in the same deliverance group, maybe. I think you're right, Amy. That's incredible. Yep. Oh, I had almost lost sight of that because the first, the first deliverance that, uh, I mean, that was the first time I'd ever seen anything like that. Um, but the first team, when we kind of broke up into teams, I was with yeah. a group of people. We were starting with the deliverance with one person. And, and I look across the way and there's, there's a lady from our church who had also come. We, we hadn't come together, but she had scheduled time to come because it was interesting for her. And she was going through deliverance on the other side of the room. And I just looked at everybody else like, she's mine. Can I ditch? Can I, can I go over there to the other side? And they're like, yeah, we got this. No problem. So I went over there and that was really the first, the first real step into that. But wow, what a powerful moment. Yeah. That is one way of saying it. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of words could be used. Yep. <laughs> I think that could be a whole nother episode. Yeah, totally. When you spoke of your list of the kind of three things God dealt with in your life, some insecurity, some fear. And I don't remember the other thing now, fear jumped out at me. Mm -hmm. do you do you feel like you could just take a few minutes and and share with our listeners how this was a roadblock to your further up and further in and what god did oh, how yeah. he unraveled that for you so that they would have a tangible sense of if there's fear in my life that is my barrier i just heard scott's testimony and it's giving me some clues and keys about how jesus wants to invite me further up mm -hmm. and further in. I, I guess fear manifested in my life in maybe less obvious ways I've never been an overly controlling person uh, or, or manipulative in that sense. But when I, when I think about it more deeply, I did have levels of, of influence or, or control, not, not maliciously, but it was outcomes. I wanted to ensure good outcomes. So I would do whatever I could to manage relationships and situations so that people would never have an excuse to get mad at me. That is like a bingo moment right there. For yeah. those of us who don't come across as obviously overbearing, we are kind or gentle or warm or friendly. What you just said is incredibly powerful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and it's so it's so subtle, right? Because it, it can fall under the disguise of harmonious relationship, or it, it can be viewed as a great way of loving people is to make them feel comfortable. But but really, what can lie underneath it is. I feel deeply restless and agitated when somebody's frustrated with me. So if I could do anything to not give them reason to be frustrated, then if they get frustrated, I can go, that's on you. That's all a you thing because I clearly have done nothing to make you angry or frustrated, mm. right? Very much a defense mechanism. Yeah, and so manipulative without being obvious. I, I'm only resonating with everything here, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> like seriously. And all along the motive is keep me safe and keep me comfortable. It's actually not love at all, but it has this exterior presentation of love. Totally. Mm. And yeah. it almost doesn't matter what the problem is that's manifesting. One of the deepest things we can get to is the fact that all of these things, these negative things that manifest are really having ourselves at the center. And we just find complicated and acceptable ways of disguising it. Yeah. 
Yeah. So it doesn't matter whether it's fear, like it could, it could be fear, you know, conflict avoidance, it could be manipulation or control, it could be, you know, even sin patterns that we can twist and easily sort of justify or disguise or hide. And we're rotten sometimes when, when we really get to it. I mean, like that whole thing, like we really need, like, I need thee, Lord, I need thee every hour. I'm like, man, every second, Lord, save me from myself. <laughs> But, but, so, but the way to jump out of it, like the, the, the way to see that is to go, okay, like that, that humility piece, like that soft heart mm. piece, like I had to get to a place where I just simply said, yes, this is actually true of me. Mm. I can't fight it. I can't hide it. I can't actually will my way out of it. I can try to be better, but in the end, it's only trying to mask it more. Yeah. It's just simply the admission, like this is true of me. I avoid conflict because I love relationship. I don't want people to reject me. I don't want people to abandon me, which is a totally other, you know, wounded area that God has brought good, but incomplete measures of healing to so far. Yeah. This is what you've just like, so highlighted something that seems really obvious to me. Sorry, if this comes across as an accusation, anyone else. <laughs> but it's like, when we have these kind of dysfunctions with this, like, mechanism of making sure everybody always likes me because I've manipulated everything by being nice. And when it doesn't work, we just build up more and more dysfunctions to kind of keep our story, to hang on to our story. And then by the time we're middle-aged, I don't understand if everybody hasn't like dealt with their barriers, then how are they not absolute dysfunctional ethics to something? The, the house of cards gets too big to manage. It does. Right? Like the, the more we try and build these systems around our dysfunction, we think we're being more elaborate. And like, if I just have enough walls and enough buffer between other people and my wounded areas, then they'll never see it. They can never reject me or hurt me or be disloyal or whatever. Yeah. And then I, I think you're right, Michelle, when, when you get to an age or a point in life, whether it's middle age or thirties, fifties, whatever, eventually your body, your mind, your soul says, dude, enough is enough. I can't sustain the energy it takes to keep expanding this buffer zone. And no matter how hard we try, little things will seep in little moments where it's like, Oh, that hurt way more than it should, but I'm going to try harder, build another yeah. wall, build another layer. And, and I don't think we're as like, uh, um, clever about hiding it as we think we are. No, everybody right? like, like, knows. Oh yeah. No one has any clue. And everyone's like, the more bigger and grander it gets, everyone else is like, how come you don't see what we hmm. see? Yeah, this is starting, oh, I, this is becoming more and more obvious. This is why I try to cultivate relationships with people like Amy, who will always tell me the truth so that it doesn't get to the point where 10 people know. If she can tell me right out of the gate, I have the chance to just like deal with it when it's smaller rather than it's like the emperor's new clothes. So something you've highlighted in the, in your response to that, to me, it's like, it's terrifying mm. to pull back the covers, to lift the bandage, to remove the coping mechanisms. Like really people can sit on that brink of, I have to deal with this for a long time and wait until a crisis provokes them to go there, which I really want to be smarter than that. <laughs> Less collateral damage that way. Mm -hmm. um, so we have this like fear thing that keeps us from wanting to look at our junk, but the reality is not dealing with it is cumulatively more terrifying and ugly and like the collateral damage. So you recognize it. You're like, there's nothing I can do about this. What's the tangible tool that enabled you to walk forward one day at a time, recognizing I'm not going to protect myself the way I always have. 
Yeah. The, the two things that were key for me and whether, whether it's prescriptive for everybody or not, it, it's just my story. So I'll share it the way it is, I guess. Um, one was I, I needed to embrace the truth, the reality that God has already seen and knows those things anyway. Mm-hmm. So the more honest I can be with him, that's the, that's the ultimate source. If I can't find a place where Jesus loves me anyway, even when I'm messy, even when I have areas that still need his transforming presence to be open and honest with him. This is true of me, but not just in a sense that I can recognize it for myself, but I can in prayer, I can literally be like, I really missed the boat on that one. Jesus, Hmm. if there's anything you want to show me great, but if not, then I just need your restoring presence. Remind me of who I am. Remind me of how much you love me and hold on to that. Even though I don't feel it, even though I may be harder on myself than he is to keep holding on to not actually let go of that truth. Hmm. Um, The second thing is having at least one person who you can say the words to Hmm. like, like that, that, that actual visible response of another human being who hears the worst parts of who you are. And instead of punching you or (laughs) snickering or running away, they give you a hug and you're like, you feel stiff. You're like, is this genuine? Could this actually be true that I just gave you the worst parts of who I am? And you're like, Hey, that's okay. I love you. That's, that's hard to receive, but so, so, so important. Completely combats the lie that I have to keep myself from safe from being seen and known and risking rejection. I love it. I love it because it's not complicated. It's a big deal. But you just said two really simple things that any one of us can do. Be honest with God, confessional. I see what I have done again. And I'm so sorry. And I just give you permission to do something about this life. And the other thing, being authentic with another human and risking. Yeah. Mm. I love it so much. And Um, both require that soft heart. Like you have to have that soft heart. Yeah. Yeah. And when I think about how God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble, it's Mm -hmm. like such a clear recipe for grace is going to transform my weakness into something beautiful. Yeah. I'm very conscious of the time that our zoom is going to time out and blow up and (laughs) abort our conversation. Did you have a freedom fallout moment? That's what Amy and I call these moments where we look and we go, I didn't just do what I have always done. Um, Yes. Um, It's ongoing and it keeps growing. But those, those initial thoughts, those trigger thoughts, those moments when you normally would go in one direction, but you can actually let go. Right. It's like the train that stops and it invites you on, but you know, it's going to take you to crazy town. It's going to take you back into that place where you're trying so hard to get out of and you let the door close without walking in. It's like those thoughts that come in. They just, you know, like when, when somebody says something and I'm tempted to go there, what they really mean is you're not a good enough friend or, or leader. Um, it's like that, that door closes, you hear that, that sound, and the train pulls away from the station, you go, so glad I didn't get on that train. Because that's, you know, depending on who you are, how you respond, that's a week of recovery, a month of recovery, six months of recovery, just to get back from that one time you got on that train. Mm -hmm. Love it. That's so good. I like that picture of like, it's not that those thoughts don't come. It's that it's like, you're no longer almost like helpless to them. Totally. You, You can recognize them and choose as opposed to before it's kind of we're so far down on the train before we even realize oh goodness how did I get here 
Yeah, that, that's the power of the revelation. The revelation yeah. brings to us the recognition that we do have the choice. Without the revelation, there's, there's really no awareness of choice and we just get on. Mm-hmm. I love it. And as you're describing this, as we get to listen to you, you know, we, we joke about it was really the fault of all the other people. And I love to joke about that because I would love to believe this is true. But the difference between those words, even when we're joking about them and here where we've landed and just said, really, we're just in this posture of openness and surrender, inviting the Holy Spirit to work in our lives, mm-hmm. how much safer and peaceful it feels deep inside of me. Totally. We really can trust him to complete the good work he started when we say, yes, you can do more. It might be uncomfortable, but I really want to head further up and further in. Mm-hmm.